In this broadcast, I want to unpack the temptations of Jesus by the devil in the wilderness as recorded in Matthew 4, and I want to compare them with what we already know about the methodologies of Satan in his engagement of Adam in the garden, and then armed with this understanding both of how the enemy addresses the Son from Adam and from Christ, as well as how Christ responds. Armed with that, we'll project that understanding onto the book of Revelation where the ultimate forming forming of the attack against the saints and war against the saints is, uh, uh, is deployed. Again, if you strip everything down to the barest essentials and, and you're not so much caught up, even though we will look at these things in detail, you're not so, so caught up in scorpions with uh, stings in their tails or um, vials or bowls of the wrath of God or trumpet blasts that reveal the wrath of God on the earth, um, or and the like. If we're not so much caught up in those things, uh, we will we will see with absolute certainty what the precise arc and formation of these things uh, is. What the arc is. What the formation is. And we'll not lose our. our our direction in the fog of war. All of those representations of the terrors to be released are subject to the Christ who has already overcome all of them in His day, in His type, in, in the day when those types and shadows were functioning against, the, against that Son who is the representational Son. The thing you must understand about prophetic scripture is it's cyclical. Every every return of the cycle is with a a, a bigger arc, a wider uh, ambit, because in the end nothing will be left undone or unchallenged. But until it reaches that full final uh, cyclical form, it will occur in multiple forms so that we don't lose our way. We understand these things are not suddenly sprung upon mankind at the end of the age. They are the culmination of that which has been here since the beginning. And we can see the repeating of the arc of these things again and again and again. With that said, let's now look in greater detail at the forty, uh, at the temptation of Jesus following the forty days of his fast, uh, when the devil came to him. Right now, he is in the wilderness. Um, I will point out here, only in passing, that the description of the location of the son born to the woman in the book of Revelation uh, is that the woman and her child 
are in the wilderness. The symbolism of the wilderness, of course, is that it's a realm of spirit in the sense that the physical barrenness of the desert and or the wilderness is one in which you cannot navigate by the familiar tomes and the familiar um, instincts of the soul. In that sense, it is a spiritual place. Not unlike when Adam came, or when, when the serpent came into the garden and man was uninitiated, man's soul was uninitiated. The devil was at a disadvantage. The devil is always at a disadvantage when the sun is in the wilderness. Why? Because the sun is keenly aware that in the wilderness he must depend upon the Father. Might I suggest, this is why God took Israel into the wilderness following their liberation from Egypt and did not immediately take them into the Promised Land. Because in the wilderness, there is no ability of the soul to supply the needs of the body. In the wilderness, God has to show up. The wilderness is an environment of faith. That's why God led them in the wilderness and they fell because, they died in the wilderness because they were apathetic they were unbelieving and they were rebellious. The word for both unbelievers or unbelieving and rebellious is the word apatheo, they were apathetic. They lived in an environment distinctly different from the structure of Egyptian slavery in which they got up every day, they, they toiled every day, and their routines were well orchestrated to get the maximum out of their labors. So their lives in slavery was regimented and it was ground into them, into their souls, like grooves deeply cut in a roadway. And yet they wanted to go back to that, this is the power of the pull of the soul when drawn to the familiar because it is drawn to a form of life that is predictable, albeit strenuous, enslaving, diminishing, humiliating, where all you are really supplied is sufficient is that which is sufficient simply to keep you alive so that you may continue to be subject to this harsh, boisterous, unyielding rule. The soul will prefer that to trusting God. And even after they had been freed from Egypt, 
for some time and seen the provisions of God that came directly from His manifested presence, they wanted to go back. They saw the manifested presence of God every day by a pillar of cloud that shaded them in the searing heat of the desert. They saw the manifested presence of God every night in the form of a pillar of fire that warmed them and made the bone-chilling cold of the desert livable. And every morning they woke up, bread appeared on the ground, not as a result of their toil, but provision from God in the desert and or in the wilderness, for all intents and purposes you are dead because you cannot feed yourself, you cannot warm yourself, you cannot cool yourself, you cannot provide for your own, uh, for whatever you, you thirst for, you cannot provide drink. And God appeared as a pillar of cloud, God appeared as a pillar of fire, God appeared as a rock that yielded water and the goodness of God was distributed all over the ground for them to collect, six days out of seven. This is an environment of histemi where God stands up because of their tetimi they're lying down as if they were dead. God carried them. He said of it, how I carried you on eagle's wings. This is what he spoke in the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, to summarize their forty years in the wilderness. I carried you on eagle's wings. So the wilderness is the place in which the Son of God may come forth in maturity. Let me say that again. In your wilderness, your Father arranges for you to come forth in maturity. Why? Because the central purpose of the wilderness is to teach you this one thing, the one thing that every Son of God must know in order to live in, to move in, and to have your very being within, and that is the sovereign presence of God, which comes to you in the form of Word. Word. Let me explain here for a moment the matter of Word, because Charismatics in particular have come to decry logos, which is the term for word, logos, L-O-G-O-S, logos. What is favored is rhema, R-H-E-M-A. Even Bible schools called rhema, because this fanciful notion has emerged in which rhema is said to be the word revealed by the Spirit, but logos 
is supposedly just the written text. And given the preference between those two choices, of course, everyone would prefer Rema. But might I suggest, this is just part of the continuing childishness of the understanding of Scripture. Because when the Scriptures speak of the Word that became flesh, the Word that became flesh, and this would be the Word spoken of here, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's not talking about rhema. It's talking about the Word that configures you to the one who is the Logos. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, the same was in the beginning with the Father. And when, the, when in, in verse 11, when it says that the, lo, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the, of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word that became flesh is the Logos, that is full of the active ingredients of grace and truth. That's not the written Word, that's the person of the Word. That's the person of the Word. The wilderness, <clears throat> the wilderness is rich with the Logos, but the Rema is, the, is what is revealed in the wilderness. You get by, by the revelation the explanation of what is, uh, who is the person of Christ. So indeed when it says, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, you get a revelation and that's the word rhema, you get a revelation of who the Logos is. Now what happens when you get a revelation of the Logos? It changes you into the Logos. It configures you. So Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil and what does the devil roll out? My goodness, the same thing, exactly the same approach as he took to the first Adam, the man of the earth. Is there anything around here to eat? Now in the case of Jesus, he was fully aware that he had been fasting for 40 days. So what does he say to him? If you are the Son of God, boom, the attack comes on the Son, the relationship with the Father if you are the Son of God. He pushes on that door, he exercises force on that door to see if there's any yielding in you. As it happened with Adam or with Eve, there was no yielding. 
So he has to try another tact. But the focus is on your identity as a son. If you are the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, do you know what the word for son there is? Weos. If you are the representational son, he doesn't have, doesn't waste his time going after children, he just traps them in the culture of their parents and in the entrapments of the soul. But if you are the huios, that's the one with whom he has business to transact. If you are the huios, command that these stones be made bread. So he addresses the huios, the fully mature son, H-U-I-O-S is the term I'm referring to, and it refers to the representational son. So when the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, that's the reference to Huias. Right? This is the representational son, the son who represents the business of the father. This son represents the restoration of rule. This son represents the return of dominion. Right? I don't want to be sidetracked about uh, those who talk about the dominion mandate, they typically don't know what they're talking about. They, 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 they speak about rule without the faintest concept of what you have to become in order to have this rule. They think once you're born again, you have that rule. No, you're born as a child, you're born as an infant. No rule has ever been entrusted to infants and the form of rule is not how you dictate what happens to the earth, the form of rule is how you present the Father within the systems of the cosmos. You show the way that the Father is that brings this cosmos into judgment, but in order to do that you must be the weos. But I I, I can't go there uh, even though I'm tempted to go there. So the first thing he does is he challenges their provision. You will, it is unsurprising that the thing that the beast, this system uh, called the cosmos, the thing that it hegemonizes, it dom- dominates to bring control over, is you can't buy or sell without its express permission. Command these stones be made bread, he's saying, how are you going to live in creation? He's not saying, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread so that, uh, so that I can see that you are the Son of God. He's saying, command these stones to be made into bread so you can eat you've been hungry for 40 days, feed yourself. And that, is, that accounts for the answer that Jesus gave him, 
which is, man shall not live on bread alone. Here he's not primarily speaking of the natural man, although the term that is employed is anthropos, which corresponds to Adama or Adam. So it's a reference to the natural man, but in his response, he's clearly indicating that the flesh profiteth nothing. It's not the intent of God for you to focus on the flesh. If you focus on the flesh, which is to say the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, that's exactly the strength of the cosmos to entrap you because all that is in the world is described as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye and the pride of life and they do not come from God but they come from the devil, they come from the cosmocrator, the one who makes this system to entrap you. So Jesus' response is indeed the response of a mature son who is found in his anthropological form. Man shall not live on bread alone because within the anthropos, within the anthropological, the form of dust lives the Son of God. So in a sense he's answering the question, if you are the Son of God, but he doesn't answer it in the predictable fashion of, of, the, of the soul giving in to the lust of the soul, to the imperatives for the need for provision in the moment. He's saying, my spirit feeds on the resource of my Father. He tells me in this moment and I hear by the Spirit the revealed Word to which I line up in my understanding because I am the Logos. The Word that God speaks to you that is representational of the Logos is Rhema. When you hear it, it produces faith, for faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by the Rhema and the response of that comes as faith. Faith comes when the Rhema stirs in you, produces in you a higher order of response that aligns you more accurately to the Logos. Not surprising, when the word comes, it typically comes by a sent one, a sent one. It comes by a preacher who is unable to come to you unless he be sent and it's the term apostolos. So when we get into it later uh, in this series as we, as we deal with how God prepares a people to overcome the enemy at the end of the age, that mature corporate son, the order of that house is critically important to its ability to overcome. Central to that order 
is the gift of the apostolos, the gift of the apostle, who in the role of both father and apostle represents a current high standard of the weos to which all sons uh, in this mature son are destined to come, to the fullness of the stature that belongs to Christ, not infants tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. If Jesus were Mary's boy in this temptation, it very likely would have been a different outcome. But God doesn't send up children to the work of adults. So, first thing he tests him with is provision, feed yourself. And the true Son of God responds in the manner that we've described. The devil doesn't give up, he takes him into the holy city. And of course, this is in that realm of the happenings of spiritual things. So, whether he was actually sitting on top of one of the parapets uh, of, of the holy city, of the, of the temple, is not the question. It appeared so in the moment. So the devil takes him into the holy city and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. These aren't just empty words, why there? Why taking him? He's targeting exactly and upping the, uh, the temptation to match what he's learning. He starts out with the Son of Man, whose natural instinct after 40 days of fasting would be to have food in his stomach, the taste of bread in his mouth. He ups the, the challenge now to something that would appeal to him. Here he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. This in Israel was the holy place. This is where the Ark of the Covenant sat. To every observing eye, this was the quintessence of religion. So he sets him on top of all of that to see what religious motivation might yet be in him. And he tells him, if you are the Son of God, once again the challenge, throw yourself down, for it is written, and he quotes Psalm 91, He shall give his angels charge concerning you. They'll bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So he's saying, you are greater than the temple, aren't you? The angels will come and tend you. Prove that you are greater than the works of the law and the temple. Jesus' response, I am the Lord your God, 
I'm not the temple, I'm not religion, I am no form that you may control, I am, and note the language, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God, he's saying. That's where religion is no temptation to a son. Part of the trial in the last days of the church, of the overcoming church, will be to resist the deception of the false prophet who will attempt to deceive the nations into compliance with the standards of the beast. You'll make an image of the beast and require people to fall down and worship the image of the beast. I don't have time to do any more in this session with that, but again you can see the pieces as they move forward to the conclusion of the age. I'm Sam Solon, we'll continue to look at how the temptations of the sons that precede tell us what will happen to the sons that succeed, that come on subsequently. I'm Sam Solon and we'll see, we'll see again soon. Bye-bye.